It's not too much to say that the chapter that we are about to begin is one of the most important in the book of Revelation, indeed, one of the most important chapters um, in the Bible. Uh, While the chapter has always moved me deeply, I did not realize its supreme significance, indeed, its its import until this week. You know, the Apostle John, the last living of the apostles, was exiled to the rocky island of Patmos for his commitment to Jesus Christ, probably under the reign of of Emperor Domitian in the mid-90s. While there, he received several visions, all recorded for us in this last book written of the New Testament. He tells us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when he heard a voice behind him, which was like the sound of a trumpet. He turned to see the one speaking and received his, his first vision, the vision of, uh, of the risen and glorified Christ. I mean, it was, it was stunning, just like you would ex- expect for the Son of God. Uh, John told him to write down the things which you have seen, perhaps talking about that vision, the, the things which are perhaps the condition of the churches, and the things which will take place after these things. How would he do that? After writing the seven letters to the seven churches, John receives his second vision. He writes, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, signifying that Jesus is speaking to him again, uh, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Don't, Don't miss it. In order to write the things which will take place after these things, he's got to see, or he's got to know the things that will take place. So come on up, John, and I will show you what must take place after these things you see. Then it becomes clear that John will write in what we call the book of Revelation, the events of the future, that things will take place. Now, we have found lots of discussion about that. Are these things which take place immediately, maybe even in John's Lifetime, perhaps, or, or, or throughout the church age, many have thought so, or the last of the church age, the end of time right before the coming of Jesus Christ. After much study, we have opted, at least I have opted, um, for the latter, that the events, um, and that is the events recorded in chapters 6 to 19 are, are yet future. In this second vision, when John was again in the spirit, he was transported to heaven. There uh, in chapter 4, we saw this amazing description of heaven, the center of which is God on his throne. We also saw the incredible worship of heaven. Now, Now, this vision, you should know, sets the stage for the rest of the book. While the seven churches, in fact, churches throughout History are facing opposition. John wants us to know God is on his throne and he will initiate and orchestrate all that will happen. These things that must take place. You see, it's it's a divine necessity. These things have been ordained to take place and, and so they will. This throne of God will appear several more times. Again, setting the stage for the rest of the book. Several more times throughout the book. Again, signifying God is sovereign. And while it it might seem that evil is reigning, God is in control. His throne will be mentioned some 17 times in chapters 4 and 5 alone. It is central 
to our understanding. Because God is sovereign, sitting on his throne, orchestrating the unfolding events, he rightly receives the worship of heaven. Now listen. While the church, the, we, the church, argue over worship, those in heaven, led by the four living creatures and the 24 elders, actually do worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So we noticed true worship is ultimately about the one worship, not necessarily, although there is some benefit, not necessarily for the worshipers. By the way, while I was talking about the worship of heaven last week vis-a-vis worship, so-called worship wars, if you thought, good, I hope those old people who only like hymns are listening, or you thought, good, I hope those young people who like rock and roll are listening, then you missed it. Worship is not about us or our consumer-driven preferences. It's actually... I, Truth be told, I I was not focusing on either group, either extreme, but the senseless battle in the middle. I hope we were both listening because worship is about God and proclaiming His worth. I suspect the worship, listen, I suspect the worship of heaven is at the same time loud and boisterous and meaningful and reverent. Cannot we do both? So we ended with the worship of our thrice holy God in heaven. We, we see him, it seems, as we're reading through now, ready to, to read or hear of the things which must be uh, after these things. And, and John will get to those, but not till chapter 6, which means we have chapter 5 first. And, and I would say, if there was no chapter 5, there would be no chapter 6 to 19. Let me say that again. If there was no chapter 5, there would be no chapter 6 to 19. If there was no chapter 5, we would never get to the things that must be. That is the things that God will initiate and orchestrate to happen. Meaning, if there was no chapter 5, there would be no ultimate wrath poured out on unbelieving, unbelieving creatures and humanity, and further, there would be no redemption. Are you listening? There would be no redemption of his believing people. That's what this book is about. God bringing to ultimate glorious end judgment and wrath, redemption and renewal. If there was no chapter 5, we would simply live on in our rebellion in a fallen and terribly broken world with only the prospect of divine, eternal wrath following death. All, All would go on hopelessly, helplessly as it has since the fall in the garden with, with no hope of redemption if there were no chapter 5. Praise the Lord, he is the God of creation and the God of redemption. He is both creator and redeemer and will unfold that which must take place, which includes the judgment of rebellious creation and the redemption of justified humanity. 
God is a God of creation and redemption. If he was not, that is no chapter 5, we would be forever hopelessly lost and there would be nothing that we could do about it. That's subpoint of chapter 5. So the vision of chapter 5 brings to fruition, fulfillment, the beginning of the glorious end, highlighting what our God and our God alone has done to make it all happen. So let me be perfectly clear. While many focus on interpreting the signs, trying to figure out a timeline, assigning meaning to these various weird images. The focus of heaven is on God who sits on his throne, the spirit of God blazing before the throne, and his son who is in the midst of the throne. No chapter 5, no hope. Read it with me, Revelation chapter 5. Let's look at the first four, vo- first four vo- verses. So on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one, let that resound in your ears, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Stop right there. Why did John weep greatly? It's a question that I've had to ask and answer this week. Why? Because if there was no one worthy to open the book, if there was no chapter 5, then God's plan and purposes for humanity would would never be realized. Which makes the rest of chapter 5 supremely, dare I say, infinitely important. So look at it with me, verses 5 and following. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth, and he came. He took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creature and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the land that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and even on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped.
How can I say anything about this? Do you realize the crescendo of praise extending from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5? Chapter 4, it started with the four living creatures and then it went through the 24 elders. In chapter 5, it it goes through the four living creatures and the 24 elders and then the, the voices of many angels around the throne with the living creatures and 24 elders and myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of those angels. And then to every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, a crescendo of praise by every living and dead being. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and, and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And we're reminded of Philippians chapter 2, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Crescendo of praise. What do, you, what do you say about this? Chapter can be easily divided into four parts, seemingly intentional by John. Four times the phrase kai Aden uh, is a Greek, and I saw appears. Look, look at them. Uh, verse 1, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. <laughs> And then verse 2, and I saw, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book. And verse 6, and I saw between the throne a lamb standing, who, by the way, takes the book. Verse 11, and I saw and I heard the voice of many angels praising the one who took the book. There's some kind of importance to this book, more of someone worthy to take it, to break its seals, and to read it. Further, the word worthy is central to these chapters. The description of heaven in chapter 4 leads to worship. Worthy are you, Lord, uh, you, our Lord, and our God. Chapter 5, verse 2, who is worthy to open the book? Chapter 5, verse 9, worthy are you to take the book? Chapter 5, verse 12, why is he worthy? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is central to worship because the old word for worship, we've just shortened it. The old word for worship is worthship. You see, wor worship is ascribing worth, blessing, and glory, and honor, and power to the one and the only one who is worthy because worship is about the one worship. Chapter 4 ascribes worship to the Creator. Chapter 5 ascribes worship to the Redeemer, to whom it sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. I'll give you the outline of the chapter, which more or less follows the, the four and I saw statements. The seven sealed scroll in verse 1 and I saw in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne a scroll. Search for the one worthy of the scroll, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? 
the one found worthy of the scroll, verses 5 to 7, and I saw between the throne a lamb standing. Worship the one found worthy. And I saw and I heard the voice of myriads and myriads of angels proclaiming worthy. We won't try to cover the whole chapter um, today. We'll simply look at the scroll and the seemingly, listen to me, and the seemingly fruitless search for the one worthy to take the scroll. Seemingly fruitless. Why would I stop there? Because I want us to feel the impact of the fruitless search. I want you to understand that there was no one worthy. I want you to understand the emotional toll that it took on John and that it should take on us. I want us to understand the infinite importance of this chapter. Starting with the seven sealed scroll, verse 1, John says, And I saw, now my translation inexplicably leaves out the word and, but the chapter begins with that conjunction tying it to what came before. And I saw. In other words, we're still in the throne room of heaven. And John saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That is, he saw in the right hand of God. The right hand we know is a position of strength and honor. We see that over and over in the scripture. For example, Jesus sits at the right hand of his father. Psalm 110 verse 1. He sees literally on the right hand as if not in on the right hand, as if God is holding the book in an open palm, ready for someone to take, take and read it. Right? Here, here it is. Come, come and get it. Come read it. Like the sword Excalibur. If you can take it, go ahead. Here it is. Can you? The word book. Could we have a book like we think of a book, a codex it's called, but... More likely it was a scroll since it was sealed with seven seals. Scrolls at this time were made of papyrus reeds. They would be stripped and then glued, then pressed under great pressure together uh, with those reeds laid out at 90-degree angles, uh, not, not woven together, but uh, on the front side, on, on, on the side which, on which you would write, the reeds would be horizontal and the reeds on the back would be added vertically for, for strength. The scrolls could then be rolled up. Sometimes they could be as long as 30 feet. It was normal for them to be written on one side. It was unusual, not unheard of, but unusual to have writing on both sides. It's, that spoke of either lots of material. If you want to look at my notebook, I only have the words on one side. Either spoke of lots of material or, or, or that it was a testament or a contract with the contents summarized on the outside. This was quite common then. Signed by witnesses. Very interestingly, often seven witnesses. The seal, by the way, could be a blob of wax or clay, sometimes pressed with a signet ring to keep the contents safe. Kind of a for your eyes only statement. I want you to hear that. For your eyes only is this book. So blessed is the one who reads it. The question is, what is the scroll? 
I've pointed out that there are lots of Old Testament allusions in the book of Revelation. This Old Testament allusion is found in Ezekiel 2, critically important. Remember in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, he is given a vision of God which contained lots of the same things that John sees the four living creatures, the indescribable appearance of God, and the, and the crystal sea. Then in chapter 2, God gives Ezekiel a scroll, uh, 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 which was written on both the front and the back. Sound familiar? And it contained, this is important, lamentations, mourning, and woe for those people who had oppressed this, the people of Israel, his people. important thing and perhaps a clue to this scroll in Revelation 5, lamentations, mourning, and woe. Again, what, what is it? Lots of guesses through the years. Some suggest, and perhaps you've heard this, that it's the Lamb's book of life, which contains the names of the redeemed. And while that may make some sense, there's no indication that that is what it is. And, and, and when the seals are opened, rather, they produce judgment. Further, the book of life, while mentioned in the book, is not actually opened until chapter 20. Another guess is that they contain the law by which the people would be judged. That's a good guess, possible, but again, no indication in the context that it speaks of the law of Moses. Some talk about a contract, some talk about a, 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 a right of inheritance, good ideas. Most others, with which I agree, suggest that this is a heavenly book. Get this. This is a heavenly book containing God's redemptive plan and the future of God's creation to include coming judgments, limitations, mournings, woes. You read the rest of the book, it makes sense as we go through seven seal judgments and seven trumpet judgments and seven bull judgments, followed by a battle between the forces of evil and, the four, and, and God, which is not really a fair battle. It's not like the end was ever in doubt. The, the second coming of Christ, the, the judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. While this book is not technically the book of Revelation, it does contain God's plan of judgment and redemption perhaps from the beginning of time to the very end, which is why I suggested earlier that it is one of the most important chapters in, in the Bible. And since it is so important and sealed, it must be open and it must be read to accomplish God's final and glorious purposes for his creation. You say, wait just a minute. I don't quite understand that. Why does this book have to be? Why can't God just do it? Listen, it's apocalyptic Literature full of symbolism and meaning. The meaning here is that it took someone worthy to accomplish God's purposes, which brings us to point two, the search for one worthy to open the book. Look at verse two, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. Now, while all angels are strong, just read through the rest of the book and see the havoc that they can, that they can create. This one is identified as a, an especially strong angel, which perhaps speaks of one of higher authority, of higher rank, maybe an archangel like Michael or Gabriel. It doesn't say that, but it could be. But why does he have to be strong, especially strong? Because the question he asks must be heard everywhere. You've got to hear it. Are you listening? Question, of course, is who is worthy 
to take the book and open the seals. And you may think yourself worthy. You, there are, are, are plenty of world religions out there that would, would tell you that this one is worthy or that one is worthy. Who is worthy to take the book and open the seals? Notice the issue is not that of power or strength, but of worth. We're not looking for someone really strong to wrestle the book from God's right hand of power and authority. Certainly no being is strong enough to take a a book from the omnipotent God. That's not the point. Who is worthy enough to take the book? That's the question. Is it you? Quick search is conducted. Verse 3, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able, that is, was worthy enough to open the book and look into it. That's universal. There was no one in heaven, that is, there was not an angelic being, not the cherubim, not the seraphim, even a strong angel like the uh, archangels uh, Gabriel and Michael. They, they, were not, they were not worthy. And you do understand that angels are, are sinless. They must remain sinless because the gospel is not for them. But one's not worthy among the angelic beings to open the book. So it's not just moral strength, you see. Search was made among the living on the earth, and none was found worthy there. Even among those that we count most important and most worthy, not the most powerful ruler, not the president, not any dictator, not any person of wealth or influence or power or celebrity status. <laughs> not, not, any, not, not any noble, no matter how noble, not any religious leader from the pope on his throne or the mightiest of orators or the greatest of spiritual leaders. No matter how spiritual you think you might be, not even, let's go to the other end, not even the lowest of the low, the most humble, the most serving, the most self-effacing, Mother Teresa need not apply. No one was found worthy among the living to include this room. Let's expand the search. Maybe... Let's go under the earth, the place of the dead. Certainly some great noble person of the past will suffice. Nope. Not Abraham, nor the patriarchs, not Moses, not Elijah, not Elisha, not David, not one of the great prophets, not even Peter or Paul who were dead by this time and under the earth. A complete search is made. The voice of the strong angel was loud and no, everyone heard it and no one was found worthy to take the book. This point, listen to me, at this point, John is drawing us to an inevitable conclusion. Humankind is lost and without hope. God's purpose in redemption will not, it cannot be met. The purpose of history culminating in the rescue of his people to include your rescue is impenetrable. You can't do it. It will take someone worthy. When commentator writes, there is a breathless sense of anticipation that is dashed when no one is available to open the seals of the scroll. Another writes, theologically, this shows how futile 
and meaningless all of history is apart from Christ. Human destiny and that of the universe hinges on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is no wonder that John wept greatly. I don't remember. He is in the spirit, in this vision. So he probably, better than any of the commentary sitting on my desk, any reader of Revelation, he more than anybody knew the supreme importance of this book. He, he knew without it being open and read that we are hopeless and helpless. We are lost. Nothing can be done. He wept greatly. This speaks of wailing, loud wailing, because no one was found worthy to open the book and to look into it. John is building a case here of the inescapable necessity of the Son of God. Which brings us to the third point, which we'll cover just very briefly, at least this week, verses 5 and following. One of the elders, that is, one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. It's rather strong in the Greek. It's an imperative. It's, we shouldn't see him putting a comforting arm around John. Say, it's okay, little boy, don't cry. No, no, it's more stop weeping like I used to say to my boys. Dry it up. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and his seven seals. Who is the one that is found worthy? Who is it? We see first that he is a lion. Think majestic Aslan, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The only place that this is, phrase is used in the scripture comes from Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob is giving his final blessings to his 12 sons right there on his deathbed. The 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. These blessings turned out to be prophetic. And of Judah, who was the fourth son, because the first three were kind of losers, um, said this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp or a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It's rather enigmatic and, and came rightly to be understood as a messianic prophecy. The Messiah, you see, will be a lion. And in the tribe of Judah, his father's son, that is his brothers, would bow down to him. He'd be, again, a lion in the scepter. That is a, a, a royal symbol of kingship. And the ruler's staff would not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. A better translation, perhaps yours has it this way, until he comes to whom it belongs. There's one coming. John says he came. Point is, the Messiah would come from Judah. And as we read of the genealogies of Jesus in both Matthew and Luke, we find his line going through Judah, his ancestral credentials fit the bill. Don't miss it. He is a lion. You know that. You've read the Chronicles of Narnia. He's a lion. Further, we read that he is of the root of David. We know the promise that was made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one would come from David's line to sit on the throne for forever. How can this 
happen. So this too came to be rightly understood to be a messianic prophecy. And again, Jesus' genealogy showed that he was a descendant of David. But the root of David actually comes not from 2 Samuel 7, but from Isaiah chapter 11. And probably a shoot from David captures the idea better. Look at it. It's a long passage, but it's really, really good. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Stop right there. My translation, many times it refers to God, it has the pronouns capitalized, rightly so here. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, this shoot to come. And we've seen Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. This speaks of the sevenfold character of, this, of the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees, uh, what his eye sees, and make a decision by what he hears. The, the idea is he, uh, his ears hear, the idea is not just that. No, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike down the earth with the rod of his mouth. We've heard that before. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. All righteousness will be the belt, of, and, and righte- also righteousness will be the belt around, about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. Wow, we haven't seen this happen yet. Yet, it's coming. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, a little boy will lead them, the lion. (laughs) Also, the cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. It's not here, but it's coming. It's coming. This was a messianic prophecy, speaking of the Messiah to come. And one of the elders says to John, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the shoot from the dead stump of Jesse has come, and he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Fear, fear not. It's, it's okay. All is okay because the one promised has come, and he has overcome. Same word as used in the promises of the overcomers to the overcomers in the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, meaning we, we overcome because he overcame. Amen. Question, I'll leave, the, leave this with you now. The question is, how did the Messiah, this Jesus, overcome? And when John turned toward the throne, what did he see? See, we expect to see a glorious vision of of a lion, strong, powerful, almighty, flowing mane, deadly claws, terrifying roar. Again, think Aslan. 
We expect to see the resurrected and exalted Christ with a description worthy of his name as we saw in chapter 1. But what did John see and how did Jesus overcome? It is the message of the Christian faith. And by the way, it is the same answer. What did John see and how did he overcome? It's the same answer. What is it? Next week. Let's stand for prayer. Father, might and strength and power and value and importance and significance in our world, we've turned everything upside down. We, we see it in so many wrong ways. We ascribe might and power and influence to wealth and status and, and our Jesus demonstrated it in a different way and he purchased for his father people from every tribe kindred tongue and nation people in this room he's a lion and he's a lamb. And we are overwhelmed by this vision of Jesus. May it forever change our lives. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.